0: Welcome to the cybersecurity readiness podcast series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of cybersecurity readiness, a holistic and high performance approach. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and Visiting Professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness podcast series. Today, I'll be talking with Patrick Wheeler, who's joining us from Luxembourg. Patrick wears many hats in the field of cybersecurity. He's a cybersecurity innovator, educator, mentor, practitioner, and architect. A few of his professional highlights include executive leader of transformative security initiatives, building next-gen cyber solutions, driving professional development of cyber executives, and rethinking traditional cybersecurity approaches. So it's truly an honor and a pleasure to welcome Patrick to the show. Patrick, welcome.
2: Well, thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So when we were having our planning meeting, Patrick, I was intrigued to learn about the cyber trauma phenomenon. Uh, Over the last several years I've been working in this area, nobody quite highlighted that challenge, that issue, quite like you did. So I'd like to start with that topic and then we can move on to others. So please introduce the cyber trauma to the listeners and let's take it from there.
2: Okay, well, with pleasure. Um- the, the concept of cyber trauma is one that I'm still struggling with uh, as to how to best apply it. And there are people who are critical about using it in this context. But I think when we look at analogies, it's a, it's a very powerful and useful analogy. And it came to me in part because a few years ago, I started looking at why it was that so many of my large customers were paying ransomware uh. uh, uh ransoms to to recover their, their data, when all of the cybersecurity practitioners were screaming up and down, don't pay, don't pay, don't pay. And I had the opportunity to work with some of my corporate communications people, and I was giving a presentation in Copenhagen, and I wanted to talk about the situation that had occurred with Maersk. Uh, and we all know the Maersk situation, uh, one of the early Russian uh, cyber attacks against the Ukraine that had gotten out of control and, and had seized up uh, one of the world's largest uh, shipping companies computers. And initially, my people were very hesitant to allow me to talk about it because they said, well, Maersk is one of our customers. You, 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 you can't talk about that. You, you just, we, we, we know. And I said, no, please listen. You have to understand what I'm going to say about Maersk. And they did allow me to get up there and speak in front of a bunch of financial professionals, not cybersecurity professionals. This was at a a financial conference. And I said, Maersk did everything right. When this unexpected event happened to them, they didn't hide, they didn't obfuscate, they didn't lie about what was going on. They also didn't overshare. They said basically to the industry, listen, something really bad has happened. We're working like heck to try to recover from it. Um, Please be patient with us while we go through this very traumatic time. They didn't use the word trauma at that time. But after this event, a lady came up to me and she had a very interesting conversation with me. And, and, And the thing that she said that really struck and stayed with me is she said, Patrick, it meant so much to me To hear from you, a respected person in the industry, my bank, effectively, uh, that we didn't do anything wrong. Because I cannot even describe to you the feeling of helplessness as I sat at my desk and stared at the computer screen and there was absolutely nothing I could do. And the reason this stuck with me quite so much is as I was empathizing with her and putting myself in her shoes. This is a person who is in charge of the financial treasury department of of Marisk at that time. Uh, She's since moved on. Uh, But she had responsibilities, tremendous responsibilities to ships at sea, to vendors, uh, to partners. She knew that if she couldn't make her payments, that salaries wouldn't get paid, that ships couldn't get offloaded, that critical business functions weren't going to happen. And that was a very emotionally fraught incident for her, and it was also quite interesting when you read later on some of the best analyses that came out of the the Maersk incident, how well Maersk handled this, but then also the fact that we don't talk about it so much, and everyone is terribly afraid uh, to talk about these types of events. And as I was listening to her, I was also quite struck with the the similarities to people talking to me about traumatic events in their lives that have happened in other contexts. There was another discussion that I had with some people that was perhaps a little bit more lighthearted that also made me think about these. And it had to do with taking executives through cyber um, exercises, cyber range scenarios, so like the X Force uh, truck that was running through Europe a couple of years ago, and they would talk about taking uh, a bunch of uh, uh, business executives through a, uh, a critically destructive cybersecurity incident, a, a, a modeled one in this case, and basically them leaving uh, the trailer being completely white, shaking, and, and you know completely destroyed emotionally. And I was really looking at this saying, what is it that we're doing that is causing people to have such aversion to what we're doing and to use uh, terminology that sounds like this around trauma? So I, I started talking to some people around this and I asked them, you know, what is it that is um, that, that around this idea that is so powerful? And it was actually a, a, a friend of mine who uh, works out of Finland who gave me one of the best analogies that I can think of. And we were talking about EMDR, which is something, uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy that's often used in military con- uh, persons who have gone through uh, quite significant amounts of physical trauma. Um, and, and what she was describing was, you know, when a car almost runs you over, the traumatic event isn't necessarily the car running you over. It's the sense of, I'm not in control of the situation. Um, bad things have happened to me because I'm unworthy. Um, and the sense that we should be in control. And especially in critically destructive cyber incidents, we have an expectation that we're supposed to be in control. That's a lot of what we, I mean, a lot of our languages in cybersecurity is all about controls. And I I kept exploring this analogy, and and I was looking at our sense of corporate identity and the fact that we have so much group adhesion that we do. We actually have people who are specialized in our human resources departments to make us connected to our corporations. And when our corporation suffers a critical cyber incident, that actually does have a psychological impact not just on the cybersecurity practitioners, but actually on the staff themselves. And this is something that, as I looked into it, I think there's been a, a not enough, but a fair body of work done around the trauma that cyber incident responders go through. Uh, and if you look, up the, look this up, you see this is a, indeed a part of a reason why we end up having a lot of people leaving our, our incident response teams. Um, And I I will personally attest to this, I I used to sit right next to one of the the most amazing incident response managers I've ever had the pleasure to work with, and sometimes he would come out of the room, just, you know, the the incident room, just bone white and sweating. And then he would do this day after day, and you could see the type of psychological toll this was taking on him. Uh, And and this is something we also need to do a better job of, but what I was really struck by is, you know, what is the, the impact on cybersecurity? Uh, incidents that we keep hidden from our employees, even though we know they've happened. Um, And and this was also one of the things when you look at trauma, uh, where we talk about we don't want to silence it to death. Um, When you have personal trauma, everything that's pushed into, into a closet just grows and tends to repeat itself. In a corporate cyber incident, we rush to recover from it. And then we tend to try very hard to forget about it. And indeed, we don't like to talk about it all that much, especially in certain sectors, such as where I predominantly work in heavy infrastructure and financial services. We definitely don't want to talk about it because we're incredibly embarrassed by these types of things. I was doing some work with um, some hostage negotiators. Uh, these are people who work with the United Nations. Um, they do critical incident handling for uh, police forces nationwide. Um, they, they do some, some very interesting uh, work in, in in critical incidents. To, to, and they provided me the, uh, the manual on countering kidnapping and extortion from the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism. And they talked about how Uh, When you have people coming out of uh, a a critical incident like this, you want to be able to offer them specialized psychological support um, for hostages, for the family that have gone through these types of critical incidents, but they had a critical mention in here, which is that often people don't want this type of support initially. Initially, we refuse the label of traumatized or victim. Uh, We very quickly want to revert ourselves to norm. Uh, We want to get back to our regular lives. And this also, I think, is something that we do in cybersecurity as well. And so we tend to um, overload and, and quickly brush under the rug uh, this type of cybersecurity traumatic incident, we focus it as an IT problem, even though we all argue in cybersecurity, it's a, it's a business problem, but then we actually don't talk to our business partners about what happened and, and how we can do better about it. So this is what I one of the things that I've really been working on, trying to figure out how can we break this down.
1: This is such an important topic. And I'm surprised that like you said, it's not talked about enough. I haven't heard anything about dealing with or providing people with training to deal with cyber trauma. What are some resources that listeners could leverage to get the right kind of training? Do you have any suggestions for the listeners?
2: Well, there's not a lot out there right now, particularly around cyber trauma or digital trauma. Um, one of the things that we do see is, uh, there's some very good work that is happening in intimate partner digital violence. Uh, now this is a, a, another form of cyber trauma, if you will, less of a corporate form and more of a personal form. Um, but there's actually some really good PDFs, if you, if you look up uh, intimate partner uh, uh, violence uh, digital, uh, you'll, you'll find some, some really interesting discussions around this. Uh, the best things, the best materials I found so far are actually out of the, the trauma industry. Um, and this is a psychological industry. So, this is something like uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Wessel van der Kolk, uh, which is a quite an interesting book around trauma. Um, I personally find the EMDR uh, something that, that speaks to me a great deal uh, because it, it talks about how we can uh, practically deal with some of these things. And what we have to do then is we have to transpose these into the corporate context. And the thing I would say is that when we're looking at cyber culture, there's a huge amount of blame gaming that goes on, or victim blaming that happens. Uh, The first thing we tell people is don't click on that link. One of the analogies I like to use is that one of the, the worst cyber attacks I ever went through started with someone clicking on and opening a link. And she did everything perfect that day. Uh, because the link that she opened was one that she was supposed to receive every single day from that business partner. She opened the link. It didn't behave properly. The first thing she did is she called her business partner at a, at a fellow bank across town and said, hey, that, that file you sent me today didn't work. Uh, and he said, Oh, don't open that file. Uh, I've been compromised my security people are here. Uh, I hope you're okay. Um, now I loved the the um, psychological dissonance in what he just said in that first off she's calling to say that the file didn't behave properly, um, and he says don't open it well of course she tried to open it. if it didn't behave properly. Um, and, and then he says, you know, I'm under attack or I've been compromised. I hope you're okay. Um, and, and so I, I just found that that's such a, a telling discussion about how the human brain reacts under crisis. We're humans. Huh? And when this happens, this is, is just normal. Um, so the person uh, did her third perfect thing that day. is so She picked up the phone and she called me. Uh, And I was in charge of the cybersecurity for that team. Uh, And that turned our dwell time, the amount of time the the attacker existed on our network, uh, down from the months or weeks that it might've been down to about five minutes. Um, And so the fact that she, A, opened the link, uh, B, called the partner, uh, and C, called me, Um, was actually quite perfect. And so many of our business processes depend on our employees doing things that we tell them not to do. And then we try to blame them. And indeed, uh, our head of operations wanted to blame this lady for opening that file, because indeed he had received the message through all of the standard awareness trainings, tell people not to click on the links. And so he wanted to immediately kick off a phishing campaign, get human resources all over anyone who clicked on the phishing campaign, and if there was a person who clicked on it three times, my God, they were going to be fired. Uh, And and I looked at this as as a complete horror uh, of a a way in which we could damage our cyber culture such that someone would not call me. Um, And so when we look at how can we transpose this discussion, first off we need to change our narrative around uh, how we work with our employees and we need to engage them so very much more. Uh, And we need to have our narrative not about don't click on the link but about being responsive, And when people do respond appropriately, we need to reward them. One of the things that I I was most proud of in this incident is I actually gave this lady a very public award for having done those three perfect things that day and having cut my dwell time down. This took the rumor mill, which said, hey, this person clicked on a link and changed that narrative entirely to say, hey, this person called security immediately after doing her job when something went wrong. She saw it fast. And so this is one of the first things we need to do. Um, the other one is that actually after a, an incident occurs, we do need to deal with this thing internally. We do need to communicate, and this needs to be an honest communication. We, we all know the kind of BS communication, uh, the announcement that comes out on Friday, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, that, that uh, we, we underplay it. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I really appreciated a few years back was uh, the story about the RSA hack. Uh, this was written in the Wired in, in uh, mid-2021. The full story of the RSA attack, attack can finally be told. This was when China broke into RSA, which handles a lot of the two-factor authentication. And 10 years later, uh, as they're quoting people, the language that the people were still using was the language of trauma. This is an ins- extinction event. RSA is over. Um, I made sure that all members of the team, I don't care who they were, what reputation, they were investigated because you had to be sure that it wasn't an internal attack. Um, and. and the way RSA handled the attack in dribs and drabs, uh, dissembling to their customers. And I was one of their customers and I received the message from RSA saying, oh, we're certain that the, the seeds have not been compromised. And we're all sitting on the other end of this telephone line going BS. We all know this type of corporate BS when we hear it. We knew it when we heard it. Um, it was a fig leaf at the very best. But the people inside who were first to lie to their customers, that was a traumatic event to them. They were, they were put in a, in a compromising situation. And you could see in this Wired article, 10 years later, they were still struggling with it. So number one, in dealing with an incident, we need to not place our employees in impossible situations. We need to communicate like Maersk communicated about their incident. Um, but also, I, I don't want to say that, that Maersk couldn't have been done better. I mean, we can all do better. Um, The the thing that I think is really critical for us is that post-incident communication and to have that be authentic and genuine, Um, not just from the executives, we expect to hear from the executives, but actually bring in external people um, and, and do this not just directly after the incident, but bring people in a, a, a little while afterwards, after things have settled down a little bit, and we can talk about it, um, and, and have some discussions and some sharing sessions around these.
1: Um,
2: this is something I can, I'm not seeing happening. Go
1: ahead, please. Yeah, if I can chime in here, you've been um, sharing some very interesting and useful perspectives. One of the things that's, that's coming through in your narrative is the importance of of honest communication, Uh, there's a lot of um, best practices out there about, or recommendations about customized communication, targeted communication. But I think we need to emphasize the importance of honest communication and also the need to create an environment, a friendly environment where people can speak up and just admit and say, hey, I did click on the link. But I'm at least informing you right away so you can take necessary action. That's better than just going silent, recognizing that I made a mistake. And now, if I fess up to it, there are consequences. So, I really like this approach, and this syncs well with the mindset out there. You know, I've been speaking to many companies about their cybersecurity training approaches. And the good news is, The mindset is not about firing people. It's all about nurturing, encouraging to ensure the desired behavior. So that's very, very, um, that's a very healthy sign. But going back to once again to dealing with cyber trauma and you mentioned about the post-mortem exercises, uh, what should you be doing after the event? It begs the other question that when we engage in cybersecurity training, though the word training these days is associated with very technical, traditional controls-based training, the emphasis on soft skills dealing with, uh, like you gave an example about this boss, the belligerent boss, and the employee who had clicked on the link was scared of the boss, and that led her to behave a certain way. She wasn't trained to deal with the situation appropriately. So Patrick, speak to the importance of developing appropriate soft skills as part of cybersecurity training.
2: Well, this is something that we've been working on a lot, and there's a couple of different ways to approach this. And one of the things that I've worked very hard on is to surround the cyber teams with a a fair amount of soft skills as well, but also to engage our business partners so that they're closer to our cyber activities. Uh, one of the things that I found most impactful was to spin up a cyber masterclass. Uh, and this was a, a really interesting exercise where I would take my executives for two days in Paris. Uh, we would go into a locked room uh, and basically spend two days doing a deep dive on cybersecurity, uh, not in, a, in the type of... Uh, uh, attack room scenario, but really, you know, what does it mean for corporate entities, what are the incidents like, how are we supposed to deal with them. The goal here was to give our executives the ability to calmly control a a cybersecurity discussion, whether it's uh, uh, during an incident or, or, or not during an incident. Uh, so this is one example of, of training that I found really, really impactful. Um, and indeed, I, I do like the, the the switch that a lot of our people have been doing is away from awareness and over, or excuse me, away, away from training and into awareness and engagement. And this masterclass was one of my first examples in really trying to engage quite uh, at, at a deeper level. The other thing, of course, is to bring your cybersecurity practitioners in as trainers for this engagement as well. So you're, you're building a, Better rapport between, between your people. Um, one of the other things that I've been working a lot on recently is, is how to attract and retain new types of skills. Uh, so there's a, a huge lack of diversity. Uh, we have a very uh, a shortage of skills um, and a lack of new entrance into cybersecurity. I work in some of the more traditional industries and we suffer from recruitment problems. Uh, we're not as, as hip and trendy and sexy as some of the fintechs or some of the um, other types of companies. And so we, we are challenged trying to find new people. And this was one of the things that, that started uh, the, the other profile of mine, if you will, which is the Cyber Wayfinder program. And this is a a program that is designed to take practitioners in other industries, whether they're in law, whether they are in IT administration, uh, whether they're in, in governance, and basically pivot them into full time careers in cybersecurity. And this effort came through initially. In an effort, uh, I I was asked to present cybersecurity as a career uh, to uh, a group of of young professionals uh, who were working on on gender and tech in Luxembourg. And I gave what I I now characterize as one of the worst presentations of my professional career. And I've been uh, asked to do a lot of presentations, so this is a really standout failure on my part. Um, After the presentation, uh, I I got a lot of feedback saying thank you, sir, for taking time from your very important job to tell us about these very important topics. And then everyone ran away to talk to the person who had presented on WordPress that night. Um, And so I really looked at this and said, what is it that we're doing in cybersecurity that is actually making us look unattractive uh, to new entrants? Um, And this is one of the things that the, the Cyber Wayfinder program is designed to do, which is to give people foundational knowledge to get them into cybersecurity careers. And the one thing I really, really love about this is that it's exactly this. We're bringing people with different life experiences. So they're not just uh, people like me. I I consider myself someone who came through the wires. I was a sysadmin. I was an engineer. I was kind of a traditional cybersecurity profile, shall we say. Um, And I absolutely love working with um, the people who are non-STEM graduates. Um, And this was one of the first discussions I had around this. I said, why is it that everyone says you have to be a STEM graduate to work in cybersecurity? Some of my best colleagues and peers do not have a STEM degree. Uh, one of the best cryptographers I know, um, practical cryptography, uh, has a degree in international business. Um, you know, so so why did we create this this artificial barrier to entry uh, to, for for new people when it didn't exist for for us before? Um, so so this is also one of the areas where I've been really really happy to see the level of engagement that can happen when you bring in atypical profiles into cybersecurity, and then these people also can often be champions of the business and understand the business better. And one of the primary sponsors of this effort was the the chief security officer of Swift, uh, which is uh, the large uh, banking uh, internet work. Uh, and his comment that we, we quote regularly, uh, and I've never found a better one, is that, you know, it's easier, it's often easier for me to train one of my business people how to do cybersecurity than it is to train a cybersecurity professional how my business works. And, and I looked at his challenges, and this is actually very true, because they're, they're a very important organization, and they, they hire people uh, from the cybersecurity industry, but they're a very complex organization, and what they do is quite unique, uh, and then often the cybersecurity professional uh, gains that experience and then leaves the organization. Um, The people that he sponsored through our program have actually stayed with their organization much, much longer than other people. Um, and, And also, I argue, have had a great impact because they understood the business first before they layered on the cybersecurity discussion.
1: I'd like to add something to that. That's so true. Business first. Awareness of the business is as important as awareness of the cybersecurity skills. Uh, I'd like to share a few things with the listeners. One of my guests who is uh, a CISO in a major educational institution, when I asked him what's the success factor, he said, I have to keep reminding myself that my organization is not about cybersecurity, it's about research, teaching, service, And I have to make sure that they can continue with their mission, with their activities in as as secure a manner as possible. The second thing I wanna say, Patrick, and I'm gonna be sharing this podcast with my students. Uh, Fortunately, in the program that I teach at at Duke University, we attract people from different disciplines. And they would love to hear what you just said that you don't have to be from a very traditional technical program to thrive in this field. You can come from different backgrounds. Like I have somebody in the program, her you know her one of her majors is in philosophy. I think there's another person who has a background in communications. The third student I can think of has a background in law. And talking about communications, another of my guests recently, um, who was a former journalist, now is a cybersecurity communications analyst at a major corporation. He made a very interesting statement. He said, Dave, you know, these cybersecurity specialists, these technical people, often the technical knowledge is a real curse to them. They have a hard time relating to what or to how the non-technical people perceive or understand them. So for them to be able to communicate in a manner and fashion that is intelligible across the organization can be quite the challenge. So bringing in somebody who has expertise in communication and then teaching that person, you know, the relevant cybersecurity subject areas, issues, and of course the overall business context, that might be a better way of preparing a person for a certain type of cybersecurity job that doesn't involve being in the trenches and thwarting attacks, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. I just want to emphasize, Mm -hmm. but then there are different roles which require different skill sets. So the thinking out there often is that cybersecurity is, belongs in the technology domain, belongs to the technical people. That's, not quite true. We have to approach cybersecurity from a holistic perspective. We have to broaden the skill sets that we bring in to deal with this challenge. So what you are saying is just so good to hear. So please continue. I have to jump in and share a few things.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you for that. And indeed that's what we see in our program. Um, And I love uh, one of the the discussions um, as I was uh, having this discussion inside the financial sector, in in and one of my partners in Paris, who's a CISO over there, uh, he, he said to me, "Yeah, Patrick, that's that's really great. I mean, for for example, I have a I have a PhD in opera," and I said, "Oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to share that with our students." Uh, so I went up to his LinkedIn profile, uh, and I, I called him back, and I said, "Mark." Uh, your LinkedIn profile doesn't show that you have a PhD in opera. He said, yeah, I was embarrassed by that. So I didn't put it in my professional profile. I'll fix that for you. <laughs> um, and, and I love this discussion because he, so he then actually went and fixed it. And I was able to share that with him. So um, and, and if you look at the discipline that it would take to get a PhD in opera, the amount of, of work uh, that, that goes into this type of stuff. The, the amount of work that it goes into pass a bar exam if you become a lawyer um, and all of these types of things uh, that, that very much is an academic preparation. But I also love the success of people who don't have these academic preparations. Uh, one of our, our students whom I'm, I'm terribly proud of, uh, she came out of the German educational system where she was sidelined very early in her life um, and, and basically sent to trade school and said, you'll never amount to anything. Um, One of our other success stories was a a young lady of African descent in Belgium who uh, there's a problem in our educational system where we like to sideline people like these and she was told to be a hairdresser. Um, And she absolutely refused um, and continued her her educational track, uh, but at the end uh, was looking at at possibly working in a museum because that was about the only role that she could actually find in the the workforce. Um, She now does identity and access management for one of my major financial partners. And time and time again, we see this type of success, uh, irrespective of early academic achievement, and we see this for people who, who don't do well early in academia, um, they, they can actually change their lives significantly. And I especially love working with people uh, much later in their careers. But I also really liked what you had to, to say about cybersecurity practitioners alienating the business or not communicating well. And I have an analogy here where I like to, to say that we are very much thingists. Um, it's about the thing. It's about the cyber thing, and, and it's all about right, and, and we have to do the right thing. Um, and, and as a technologist, we're very good at doing things. And absolutely, we, we, we desperately need our technologists. When you're, when you're trying to make sure your everything is patched, when you're trying to make sure your, your network is running properly, when you're trying to deal with an incident, we need these technical resources uh, to do things for us. But also when we look at our longer term cybersecurity objectives, we need project managers and program managers who understand cybersecurity, but also understand how to get things done. Um, hopefully on time, on budget, uh, and, and in scope. Um, it used to be you could get two out of three. I think these days it's one out of three. But, but uh, you know, if we're getting one of those three, uh, th- then it's, it's also uh, not, not too bad in some cyber teams. Um, we also need uh, architects or threat hunters, you know, people who understand the external perspective. Because a lot of times when we look inside, uh, we're just patching, we're doing the rote activities that we're told by the control framework to do. But we also need to have that external threat perspective. So we need to get the right things done. Um, And then the other component we need to add into that is that business perspective. We need to get the right things done for my business. And this is one of the things I've been trying hard to keep expressing again and again to cybersecurity practitioners. And I put it under the rubric of politics and people don't like office politics. They don't like to be said, you have to become a better politician. But the argument I have is that doing technical things, getting things done, uh, getting the right things done, actually don't matter if I alienate my business at the same time. And I've seen this time and time again with what we call strong CISOs. And I've talked to some people who come out of the military and, and I try to caution them on what I call the Colonel syndrome, which is you come in, you have an objective, you know what you have to do and you don't do a damn fine job of it. Um, and then you totally alienate your business and they fire you. And then you're replacing a CISO every three years to three months. Um, and a Just lot of these add something actually- there,
1: Patrick. I, ha- I have to add something there. It brings back uh, a memory of when I was in corporate. Um, a senior executive gave me a great piece of advice. And you know how life is. You hear things and I'm, I've, I'm becoming more and more convinced that you hear things or you're told things for a reason because ultimately it comes back to you. And here we have an opportunity to validate what was shared with me the, uh, in a long time ago. The gentleman said, Dave, when you join an organization, don't give them the impression that here I come, I'm gonna change everything up, I know what's good, you all need to follow my approach. That's gonna be the worst thing that you can do because before you know it, you'll be kicked out or you'll be sidelined and you'll have no effect. And this is so consistent with what you just shared about a CISO uh, taking on the role, making sure, they connect well with the other C level executives They connect well across functions so they can truly become an enabler a strategic enabler, as opposed to becoming known as a person who is always going to put up a hurdle or will always say why a certain initiative cannot be done because of these kinds of risks so. To, to develop that persona, that friendly persona, that a person of somebody who informs, who educates, who tries to find pathways so the business can do what they need to do without digging a huge hole. That, that's the kind of savvy that happens with experience, but that also requires training in the softer skill sets, whether it's interpersonal skills, whether it's communication skills. Whether it's the ability to deal with cyber trauma like scenarios. So there are so many skills that are uh, that, that are at play here. And I'm so glad you touched upon these many, many skills. Because people who will be who are listening to this podcast and are wondering whether cybersecurity is really a field for them given their background, given their experience, I'm sure you'll agree with me that. Absolutely, if you have the passion, if you have the interest, if you have the curiosity, there is no reason why you shouldn't jump in and explore where you would be a great fit. But anyhow, Patrick, um, we are running out of time. So I'd like to give you the opportunity to to wrap it up for us here. Okay, so uh, exactly what you said, do jump in and do
2: explore this. And the other thing is you don't have to be perfect from day zero. And this is the thing, advice I give to newcomers, but also to professionals when we're we're looking at dealing with the executives. I say, let them see you sweat. Let them see you working. Let them see your passion for what you're doing. Even if they disagree with you, even if they shut you down, communicate honestly with them that you're passionate about what you're doing, that you're passionate about learning, you're passionate about protecting the organization. And I've seen this work time and time again, where we really care to see our colleagues care about what they're doing. And if you can get this passion for yourself, um, please join cybersecurity, because we need people who are passionate about it. If you're losing your passion, try to find it again, uh, because we need people not to leave. We've got far too many people leaving. Um, And then this this, thing about uh, continually training ourselves and, and working with empathizing with our partners is just so, so important. And this is something I had to work on myself. This empathy didn't come naturally. And so we can indeed train ourselves to be more empathetic. Um, I'm a fan of the design think methodology. Uh, I'm a fan of, of, of looking really deeply at uh, the people and try to put myself in their feet to understand why they're making the decisions they are so I can ha- be a better influencer in this context. Um, so please, Dave, keep up the good work, bring new resources in. We desperately need them. Um, and thank you for this opportunity.
1: Thank you, Patrick. That was great. I look forward to having such conversations with you in the near future. Thank
2: you. Okay. Until soon.
1: A special thanks to Patrick Wheeler for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.
0: The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis, with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.